It's Tuesday, August 23rd, and this is Market Foolery. I'm Chris Hill, and joining me in studio today from Motley Fool Income Investor James Early, from Motley Fool Inside Value Joe Mager, and from Motley Fool Global Gains Tim Hansen. Guys, it feels like we shouldn't be inside today. It's such it a, is beautiful day It's outside. a gorgeous day Lovely outside. Day. It's a gorgeous day outside in Alexandria, Virginia. And frankly, this, this goes to my case that I've been making for a long time. In the studio, we need a retractable roof. I like it. Because we could just like mm-hmm. pop it open and it'd be gorgeous. Is this, our, is this our reward for suffering through that hellacious July? Yeah, it is. Okay. It is. That's nice. All right. We have bad news for Warren Buffett. We have better news for William Sonoma. But we will start with the news that Devin Sharma, the president of Standards & Poor's, is resigning at the end of this year. This comes just weeks after the S&P cut the United States AAA credit rating. James Early? All a big coincidence, I'm guessing. It could be, Chris. It is <laughs> ironic that the person who downgraded the U.S.'s debt is now being replaced by a top executive from one of the top TARP recipients. Um, <laughs> but but truth is, S&P was under heat for, for really a number of, of, of reasons uh, before this. Well, obviously, the Obama and the, the U.S. Treasury after this downgrade, but the SEC was looking into them um, even for, for some of this uh, rating stuff with the, with the subprime bonds. And then the shareholders have been upset for a while. They want this company broken up into four different entities. Entities. So it's it's not really fun being CEO of, of S&P <laughs> right now, I, I can't imagine. So, yeah, I'm sure the timing has something to do with it. I would doubt that, that he was actually forced out. I think he just got sick of it. Tim, what do you think? You know, it's an, I think it's an interesting situation to see that there are political consequences to this U.S. downgrade, as a lot of people sort of theorized at the time, that there would be fallout from this. And it appears that 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 is happening. You know, I, I'm just curious about the process that went into that S&P downgrade, because as we all know, Moody's and Fitch haven't Downgraded, right. downgraded the United States. Their CEOs want their jobs. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're all and they're all looking at the same data set. So S and P saw something different. I'd be intrigued to just see how that debate went on internally. And I, I would actually wonder if, if um, this is one of those cases where two sort of documents were prepared uh, simultaneously, and then the call was made only at the last minute uh, about which one to go with. Call was heads or tails. Exactly, Joe. Well, I think it's tough to speculate on what actually happens. It's, it's a fun podcast, to speculate. It's a Joe. Podcast. It's I was going to say, but I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, what kind yeah. of answer is that? Uh, yeah, no, I think he was. You worked it out. Good. I mean, I think James makes a good point about how they're struggling S and P, and you know the the broader companies had a, a lot of heat thrown their way lately by investors. I mean, it would be pretty foolish to not suspect that there's some sort of association with what happened with the downgrade. We're probably not going to find out until Andrew Ross working writes some tell-all book about, you know, the finer points of how this guy got forced out. But I'm sure he's not leaving to pursue more interesting opportunities in the rating agency field or to spend more Ostensibly, time with he, he wants to be CEO of a more visible public, well, hard to be more visible than S&P right now, more visible public company. And, yeah, we're, and, we're looking for someone who can lead us into crashing our brand. <laughs> He, he, the PR uh, uh, statement is that this was planned for, for this has been planned for like the past year, but again, you know, for whatever that's worth. So, James, you mentioned earlier some of the the ratings calls that S and P has made. Um, right in the wake of the Google Motorola deal, uh, they they downgraded it, uh, right, they, Joe? They they, they yeah, they a, took it to sell. They took it to sell, and, and then they, they brought l- it back up to hold. Right. Like so, I mean, later. within days, they had just changed their rating back up again. What is the likelihood that within a year, the AAA credit rating has been restored by S and P? Do you think a, a change in management will and uh, will Bring that about? I wouldn't be surprised. S&P's last word was that it might downgrade the U.S. again, but but with a new CEO, anything goes. Joe? I would be surprised. For all the heat that they've gone through on this, they've 
got to stick by their guns on it. I think it could come back eventually, but it would probably be a while. Like the uh, like the European leaders in the Euro, they got to stick to their guns. Yeah, you know, when you commit to something in public, the 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 psychological pressure to stick with it is extraordinarily strong. So I, I think S and P is going to go there, and I think it's more likely that you see one of the other agencies follow through with their own downgrade rather than uh, the S and P upgrade the U S. Mostly because the fundamentals from here only get worse for the U S. Not better. What's interesting is the Wall Street Journal had a piece a couple of weeks ago about how terrible ratings agencies are at predicting sovereign defaults. They were rating all these good companies that like Russia and a bunch of other ones is very high right before the default happened. And the same is true, I think, for, for, for companies. I read something that up to 18 months before the actual uh, uh ratings downgrade, the market moves and adjusts the prices of a company's bonds if its economics are looking poorly. So, so, so the point is these are basically historians. They're, they're not forecasters. They're increasingly irrelevant. So uh, it's, it's a lot of talk, but, but the ratings, these agencies don't do much at the end of the day. Shares of BYD down big today after the company warned that it could post a third quarter loss. This is the Chinese auto and battery maker that Berkshire Hathaway bought shares of in 2009. Joe, you're a big Warren Buffett guy. Um, what's going on with this investment? That's I mean, basically the the company's lost two billion in uh, in value since the Berkshire Hathaway investment. Yeah, well, it looked initially like Berkshire had made an incredible investment on this. The shares absolutely took off. Everyone was happy. Lots of making money, and everyone, including myself, you know, roughly a year ago, was like. Wow, what a great example of how these guys have expanded their circles of competence. And Tim undoubtedly is about to rip into them and <laughs> talk about how he predicted this, which he did. I would never do that, Joe. <laughs> but, yeah, the, things at BYD are definitely taking a turn for the worst. Uh, first half car sales were off 23%. That makes up half of sales. You know, Meanwhile, General Motors was actually having a strong first half over there, and their sales were up. So... It's not. There's not a lot to be enthused about with BYD right <laughs> Why? now. Why? Because the stock is at a two-year low. <laughs> yeah, and you know it's a tough situation. And I know Buffett, all the way up to his credit, whenever someone would be like, "Ah, oh, you made such a great investment in BYD," he'd be like, "Well, in fairness, you know that was kind of a Charlie Munger special." Uh, Charlie Munger is the vice chairman at Berkshire. For those of you who aren't total investing nerds, and it's an idea that Munger has been very hot on. Uh, so I'll be curious to see now that it's run back down if, you know, certainly Buffett's going to get asked about it, and I'm sure he'll be try and be tactful about General Motors is like the prestige brand over there, is that right? Like you drive a Pontiac, you're, you're cool. Yeah, and it's a market yeah. leader over there. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tim Hanson, uh, headline from an article you wrote December of last year, don't buy this Buffett pick. What was it about BYD that you saw that you just did not like at all? Well, well to, to be fair, I, I believe that, that Berkshire still doubled their money on BYD to date. So, so despite which is the still fact, good. Which is still good. So despite the fact that it's down about 75% from its peak, they invested about $200 million, and I think their stake is still worth about $400 million today. Um, you know, so that's where they started from. Where they've come from is a lot more <laughs> embarrassing for them. Um, you know, this is an example of, I think, you know, they didn't get the China part of this Chinese company. They saw fast-growing sales. <laughs> I'm sorry. That seems like kind of a big part to not well, get. Well, this is funny. I mean, that was John Paulson's excuse for losing money in Sino Forest also, is that they looked at it like a like a, a lumber company and missed the China part. And and they looked at this like an auto company and, and an innovative auto company and completely missed the China part, which was that the sales in China were going up because they were being completely subsidized by the government. They missed the the analysis of the competitive landscape, which is that BYD was only one of a myriad companies in China doing this sort of thing, and that their cars, 
just their you know everyday run of the mill cars in China are are basically junk. I mean, <laughs> they're ju- how are you going to go from being a junk commodity car manufacturer to being one of the world's most innovative electric car and battery makers? Like bridge that gap for me and and tell me why. And apparently, it was Munger saw something in the CEO that just made him stand out, but. I mean, all you have to do is go to China for for three days, and everybody will tell you an incredible about an incredible investing opportunity in the country. And as an analyst, it's your job to sort of see the difference between who's telling the truth and who's just talking up their own book. You guys have mentioned uh, Charlie Munger a couple of times now. Um, uh, Buffett has said that, that you know this this is Munger's call. Munger sort of talked him into this. Um, is Warren Buffett at the point in his career where? He's essentially playing with house money on on some investments, as you said. They, you know, they've they've roughly doubled their investment, but you know, we, I, he we, does not think of it as house money. Well, I'm sure but of that. I mean, but it, when I hear Warren Buffett say essentially, "I'm just abdicating responsibility. I'm handing this over. This isn't something that I'm passionate about, but Munger is, and I trust him." That that's, well, that's in fairness, a, we're talking about an original investment of two hundred million. I mean, inside the Berkshire portfolio, this is like. A tiny, tiny, tiny thing. Right. And that's when I, when I say house money, I mean, it's money that they just sort of look at and say, wow, at, for Berkshire Hathaway, this is, a ti- this is a fraction of the money that we're dealing with. And so if, if this doesn't pan out for us, well, we're going to be okay. Well, this is a system that has worked for them in the past. I mean, if you go back through the history of Berkshire Hathaway, you know, the, the, the stamp company, um, the chocolate company, you know, these were all investments that they didn't necessarily have clear consensus on one guy felt really strongly about it and they've generally speaking paid off incredibly many many times over i think the same framework was was at play here i don't think they've necessarily lost their touch but like a lot of people who go into china and look at investing or doing business there you can't treat it you can't look at the books the same way you can't look at the management teams the same way and use your same sort of frameworks to judge them it's a different country with a really different investing culture and you know buffett is famous for hating to leave Omaha, let alone go to China, you know, and, and, and learn about what's happening there. And I think that's basically, I think they got, they got bit because they took things at face value with this company. And I don't think you can do that. Yeah, I'll be curious to see how Munger responds to this whole thing, because he is a serious straight shooter. I mean, anyone who's listened to some of his speeches or whatnot, like he does not hold back. And he's pretty intellectually honest, I would say. So I'm very curious to see when he inevitably gets asked, you know, how do you feel about this if he's willing to I mean, B- suck and it up? The and- BYD thing may have been a big education for them. I mean, just in the period that they've been shareholders, they've obviously seen their sales completely inflated by government subsidies. They've then seen the company have factories taken away from them by the Chinese government because they had illegal land permitting issues. And then they saw sales collapse because the government then took those subsidies away. I mean, all you have to do is, you know, see those three things happen over the course of a few years and go, wow, you know, companies in China don't exist independent of government policy. And, and when you're analyzing them, it's something to consider. And finally, William Sonoma reported earnings this morning. Profit up 28 percent. Company raised guidance for the rest of the fiscal year. Tim, uh, shares still down a little bit today. What's going on? This is interesting. I don't think I would have looked uh, closely at this one had you not asked me to specifically. <laughs> so, but but I was intrigued by by what I found. You know, William Sonoma for people who may not who may not know everything that they've got their hands in. Joe among them. Yep. Um, although if you're getting married as you are, you will soon learn all about William Sonoma. Yeah, and, you got to register there. They got some good stuff. There. Pottery Barn and uh, West Elm are their are their are their brands. Um, sales are basically flat at the stores, but sales were up 13% in what they call direct-to-consumer, which is their online segment, which is pretty exciting because it just shows that, you know, o- online commerce, you know, box or, you know, 
landed mall type retailers can win in online just as, as Pottery Barn is doing or as William Sonoma is doing. And then their West Elm brand is doing really well. So that's one of those things where you know you, you see William Sonoma and you think high end kitchen, uh, maybe the business is struggling in this economy. This is West Elm, which is more of a discount type um, or a lower priced option, is doing is doing quite well. So it's an interesting stock. Um, has a strong balance sheet, generates a lot of cash. Obviously, furniture and things are very inventory intensive, but they seem to do a decent job. I would say it's it's cheap enough to be interesting, but not quite cheap enough to be um, be a, a completely worthy buy. Well, let's help Joe out because, as you mentioned, he's getting married and he's going to need stuff for his kitchen. So, I mean, you're you're pretty handy in the kitchen, Tim. What in terms of Thank ki- you, Chris? In terms of kitchen gadgets, because uh, when I I was in a Williams Sonoma a couple of weeks ago, and it's just there's just a lot of gadgets, a lot of tools. What what's like a go to tool that you know Joe's got to have in his the hand blender. The hand blender, hand blender? is is what? unbelievably great. <laughs> well, really? James immediately is like, "What?" So here, here, so the hand blender we use it at breakfast because smoothies. It also makes all the baby food in seconds flat. You can make pasta sauce. So we've got a great quick pasta sauce recipe, which is you just buy the canned t- whole tomatoes, right? Yep. You drain them. All in the can, you add your olive oil, your garlic, your fresh basil, uh, pepper, you know, the other herbs and spices you're using, and then bam, hand blender right in the can. Wow. Pour it into the pot, simmer it off. So, wait a minute, you're talking about the electric. Bl- At first, I thought you meant the crank. No, no, no. It's an electric gadget. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's just a blade on the end of like a, like a, like a ruler, essentially, or yeah. the length of a ruler, and with a button, and it just, you just puree things. You, you know, it's, it, you can use it everywhere. It chops for everything. Up, is that strong? It, yeah. I mean, it goes through ice cubes, smoothies. Huh. Um, Pa, you know, pasta sauces. It was great on with baby food. Um, it's like a home it's, defense it, weapon too. It's an, <laughs> yeah. it's an incredible gadget for all that it does. And, and so, one of the problems we have in our house is that we try to we try to create as few dirty dishes as possible. The hand blender, because you know, if you use an actual blender or food processor, yeah, you've got a pain to clean. It's a disaster. It fills up yeah. your whole your whole dishwasher. Hand blender, no problem at all. James, uh, you have a you know, I'm not gadget. A gadget. By the way, guy, free I, hand blenders if people want to send them to me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I cook, I try to make one pot meals, and I actually eat out of the stainless steel pan so I don't have to use a dish, as, as Tim was mentioning, <laughs> over the sink, too. So if I make a mess, it's it's already right there. So wow. That's my life. Wow. Boy, romantic dinner with, uh, with <laughs> oh, you yeah. and the missus at home. Joe, uh, do you, I mean, I know you like to grill. I do. What's, what's uh, well, My grill is at Tim's house. It's a long story, but the short version is... That it's I, actually now my grill. Yeah. No. According to Virginia State this law, is, I have squatter's <laughs> rights. Squatter's rights. No, you didn't. <laughs> so it's a, it's a big green egg. It's, Come it's get the it, best Joe. grill slash smoker available. Okay. Uh, you will not find a better way to cook meat anywhere than the big green egg. Can't but, recommend it enough. So you're not it's rec- more than a gadget, though. Yeah, you're right. not recommending a gadget. It's a way it's of life. <laughs> well, okay, I've spent a lot of time in Tim's kitchen, too. I'll say it's so organized... He's got like little storage boxes for everything in there. It's very nice. It makes cooking easier. We also we have a rule in our we have a relatively small kitchen, so our our rule is that everything needs to have more than one use in order to be allowed in the kitchen. Uh-huh. So so that helps contribute to the organization. All right, Joe Mager from Inside Value, James Early from Income Investor, and Tim Hansen from Motley Fool Global Gains. Guys, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. Thank you. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. That's it for this edition of Market Foolery. Our producer is Matt Greer. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.